Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture whether you like it or not. Today I'm here with Roman, and uh, we're going to talk about Goethe's Faust, and just Goethe's Faust Part 1, because there is a Part 2. This is a work of literature that was written over the course of Goethe's life, and who was Goethe, I'll explain in a second. But Faust is so deep and so complex and so difficult and so unknown in the English-speaking world that we're going to have to break it down starting from the very beginning, talk about the plot, talk about the characters, talk about the background on Faust. Was there a historical Faust? Where did the story come from? Who was Goethe? And then try to, we'll give some impressions of our, our analysis of it. But this is a work of literature that I've been sort of studying on and off my whole life. I can't say I understand it very well. I've read it first in high school, uh, not for school, but outside of school. And I took a class on it again in college, and I had it with this German professor who was a very good teacher, and he was very good at drawing out the interesting bits and sort of explaining this very alien and complex story to a bunch of, uh, you know, rather uncultured American uh, 20-year-olds. He was also a raging homosexual, which was kind of funny. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, he was still a good teacher. And since then, I've, I've reread it a few times. It's a work that's very difficult to get into if you don't at least have a passing knowledge of German. The most common copy or the copy that I have is uh, Goethe's Faust, translated by Walter Kaufman, who is, yes, a Jew. But the nice thing about this version is that he's got the German on one side and his English on the other. So if you are unimpressed with the English, you can at least refer to the German. Um, there's is a bunch that the of Kaufman that translates Nietzsche? Uh, yes, it's the same guy. Yeah, he is he is good. I mean, his his version is in uh, rhymed verse, so he he imitates the German meter and the rhyme scheme, which means that it's necessarily going to be harder to actually imp- carry the meaning as well. But he does a fairly good job, I think, and and it's a, a passable version. But it, it really does help to at least have some knowledge of the German to tr- because the book is really it's really difficult to convey a lot of it as is true of all poetry but especially in a work as is like deep and as rich as Goethe's Faust so let's talk about let's talk about Goethe first who was Johann Wolfgang von Goethe he was born of a middle class background in he was he was basically you know, a post-Renaissance and like a romantic era German who just broadly speaking lived a, a pretty incredible life. Um, he, you know, he's known as mostly for Faust, but he studied law. He was supposed to you know, follow in the footsteps of his like bourgeois father and get, get a law degree and sort of settle down. They had some money. I don't, I don't think it was like low level aristocrat. Yeah, I've seen. I, I actually walked by his house in Frankfurt, his like childhood house, and it is fairly big. It's got. I wasn't able to go inside, but it, it had. It's a two or three story house with I don't know six windows on the front uh, on each floor. I think it was pretty big. So. Yeah, they had money, but I don't think they had a real, you know, name. Oh yeah, no, they were they were burgers. Yeah, and you can you can see that through his literature. He clearly identifies with. German burghers and sees the German aristocracy as like a different 
type of person. So yeah, he displayed a kind of early genius in writing and through different associations. He spent a lot of time with a lot of people. As he got older, he hung out with Schiller. But when he was young, there's all kinds of writers he spent time with. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people who aren't really known anymore. But he went to uh, Leipzig University, and then mm-hmm. his he had uh, he basically just drank and partied there. And then his father sent him to Strasbourg for a little while to finish up on, or to get his I think it was for his law degree. Yeah. And he after he spends more time back in Frankfurt, back at home and wasn't really going anywhere. Didn't really know what to do with his life. He didn't, wasn't really interested in law. So he had this opportunity to go to Weimar to serve the Duke there because he had made a a name for himself as a writer through one of his first, his first two books that were fairly successful were a, uh, a play called Goetz von Berglichingen about the medieval German knight errant Goetz von Berglichingen. And yeah, the same one that Antelope Hill just put something out on. Yeah, not that yeah long exactly. Ago. Exactly. And then his other one was Wilhelm Meister's Laris Yar. Or so, no, sorry. The Werther. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorrows, Sorrows, of, Sorrows, of, Sorrows of Young of Young Werther, right? Which was a really, it was like a sensation in Europe. This was so Goethe was born in 1749, and he wrote Sorrows of Young Werther in would have been the 17 early late 60s. 60s. Okay. <laughs> It, it was he was very young. He was I think he was 20 or so or early 20s when he wrote it, and it was a story about a young man who is deeply in love with this girl, and I don't know the details, but he just decides to kill himself when he can't have her, can't satisfy his love, and he jumps into a river and drowns, and so this caused a fad across Europe of people reading the book and having a copy in their pocket and, and uh, either shooting themselves or jumping into lakes and getting fished out. And, you know, they were finding the copies of the book in these people's pockets. And Goethe later had to add a, a little piece on the front of the book to say, like, don't, you know, please do not. It's like, be a man. Don't be Werther. It's an early TikTok challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So how did Goethe become this deeper, more interesting writer? Because early, I mean, these early books are very romantic and, Sturm und Drang, they're they're very feely and emotional, but they're not, nobody would consider them really uh, mature literature. Yeah, his, he has a really interesting meandering path. It he, he does seem kind of, as far as his reported biography, kind of pretty unique with intellectuals who generally, like somebody like Shakespeare, it's other people's careers seem more like a straight line. And Goethe, he was born... When he was raised, he was relatively conservative and Christian. And then when he went off to college, he became sort of a little more liberal and free thinking. And then uh, I think it was his first college period when he was first starting with law. And he couldn't finish the first time because he came down with what was probably tuberculosis, but just something that was a really serious disease. Had to spend time home resting for like a year. You know, that's what would happen back then is you would get tuberculosis and you'd either die or you'd be really laid up for like a year and then maybe some permanent side effects or just go back to normal. During that period, he sort of found, I guess, their version of like a born again religion. He spent a lot of time with some older woman, not physical, but maybe one of these like psychosexual things who was very religious and he joined some type of 
hardcore Christian group around then. And he, he was right. He was he writing did, things. He did have a very varied life. A lot of his books. Um, I was reading a biography of him by this Englishman. And it, whenever it goes into one of Goethe's books, it's very critical of the book. And I'll say, oh, he this part doesn't make sense or he didn't really master this piece of it. But that criticism just sort of shows you how uh, how much Goethe was pushing himself because he wasn't just settling into like one genre. Many of his his uh, plays and novels and poems are widely different. He just yes. didn't feel comfortable settling in one spot. And and that sort of mirrored his personal life where he was trying new things. He, he tried. He was very into theater when he was young, uh, puppet theater. And he went to school, I mean, partly because he had to. But then then he all, had all these weird relationships with women, some of which were sexual or romantic. And some of them were just. I don't know, like you said, weird psychosexual encounters. Yeah, unconsummated. Yeah, so I think, yeah, he was sort of a Christian figure for a little bit, and then he went back to school when he got better, and I think this was one of his relationships that was unrequited. He fell for, and this was where the Werther story came from. He fell for a married woman, and he spent time with her and her fiancé. Yeah, I think uh, that was Charlotte buff i think her name was yeah i think that's because there were two charlottes and there was a frederica and <laughs> one, that, one that rejected him and one he rejected yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 the other charlotte oh no i'm thinking of frederic brion that's the one that is probably the faust's okay maybe that right because she was like the country girl who from near strasbourg and her brother was wasn't keen on her having a relationship with goethe yeah, he most of the relationships were with younger women because he continued to get older and the women that he generally started these relationships with kind of just were the same age. Like right, right. from when he was in his mid-20s through like 70s, with a few exceptions of women that were his age or even older. And then most of those were more intellectual, emotional things. So he wrote Werther which supposedly Napoleon said he read like a dozen times. That's interesting. Because <laughs> I guess he would have been a youngster or a young, young man. And that's why he wanted to, they did meet when Napoleon was passing through Germany. I think they had, he specifically requested to speak with Goethe and they had like an hour together, which is an interesting, interesting thing to consider in the world of social media and the internet and stuff that two people could want to talk to each other so bad and just carve out an hour once in their lifetime. Yeah. And people uh, from such widely you know, different walks of life as Napoleon and Goethe, you know? Right. And so there was, so before that he kind of became a German nationalist. He met somebody when he was setting up a legal practice. There was a writer named Herder. Yeah, yeah, Hunter, Gottfried, yeah. So he was the one that introduced him to the concept of German nationalism and sort of romantic German nationalism, which was becoming really popular. Um, and he started doing things like riding around the countryside and appreciating the architecture and also seeing language as the corollary to the genetic tribal identity of a people and specific figures as the culmination 
of that identity, like Shakespeare for Renaissance English and I guess Dante Dante, maybe for Italian. Dante for the Italians or Homer for the Greeks. Right, right, right. So he started to understand that from the sky herder and basically started to become, I don't know, you know, if he was like, I'm going to become that person for German for like romantic era German or that just happened. But he basically memed himself into, into that. And he had a lot of criticism of German nationalism, you know, just like all, (laughs) all German writers like, you know, Nietzsche wasn't the first one to criticize German nationalism, but Goethe was a little bit more of a German nationalist. And, um, but he was also like a cosmopolitan. I mean, that's what he liked about Napoleon. And he was really impressed with the kind of pan-European idea and the great man idea that was going on there. Right. Um, I know, I know as a kid, he'd studied well through his life. He'd studied French, of course, Latin, Italian, English. Some of his letters from Leipzig back to his sister were in a lot of them were in French, but apparently some of them were in like really bad English, (laughs) which is kind of funny. But yeah, I think his English improved later because I know he did read Shakespeare. I mean, there were translations available, but he he was very much into Shakespeare. Yeah, that that comes out in the, in the Wilhelm Meister. So I guess, and then the other main thing that really informed his character and who him as an intellectual, even though he was a fantastic writer, prob, you know, kind of consensus best German writer of modern German, his personal philosophy was that and this comes out basically developed in Faust, is that action and doing things that affect the world, like sort of projecting yourself into the world as a force that does things and doesn't just contemplate ideas like as a as a pure academic scholar or a hermit or whatever is the foundation of meaning and like the good life and stuff. So even though... That sounds like a pretty serious criticism of the online right wing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like real life is cringe, bro. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the thing about Goethe is, I mean, it it probably our discussion of this to German people probably sounds like retarded because German people, <laughs> this is their George Washington, Shakespeare, and I don't know Jesus all in one. So he's if you go into a German language bookstore, you just see like whole shelves of Goethe this, Goethe that. His collected works, I think, are 143 volumes, including, mm-hmm. you know, not only the plays that he wrote, but also his diary entries and his letters. There's hundreds and hundreds of his letters that are, are preserved. So he's just a huge figure in the German imagination. And he was a fairly big figure in Europe and his time in the late 1700s and early 1800s. The first was the first Englishman to translate Faust was Sir Walter Scott. Maybe it wasn't, might have been Werther, but um, I think Scott translated Faust, yeah. Yeah, but Scott translated Faust, which, you know, you think of Sir Walter Scott and you think of this guy writing Ivanhoe or, I don't know, Scottish pastoral, kitschy poems. And no, Sir Walter Scott was reading Goethe. I mean, people in, and Byron also was reading Goethe and criticizing him and Goethe had some interesting trash talk about Byron too. Uh, so these people were, were talking across nations. They weren't just staying to themselves, but uh, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but in English, Goethe really hasn't been appreciated since about World War One. I. I mean, if you look, 
I get the sense that he was at least studied or known by English speakers prior to World War One, because there's a lot of a lot of the books you see or like study guides to Goethe are from before World War One. But then after that, it's just like not even a part of the English curriculum. Like most people don't even think that this guy don't know that this guy existed or think that he's some peripheral figure when he really is a central figure of European culture and history and literature. My my theory about that is that in empire you can really only have like two languages that are you can have the sort of like the roman empire mm -hmm. you can like have with greek yeah yeah so if you're just a nation in the middle of europe people are very multilingual you know and you can know a half a dozen languages without even trying but when you're an empire that spans a large territory what it seems like what tends to happen is there's the language of the empire and then one other yeah, one other scholarly course. language, right? Which I guess we sort of went with French because, like, Germans were the bad guys after the beginning of the 20th century. Well, I think it was because French was I mean, French culture was the culture of uh, you know 18th century or even the 17th century, and the founding fathers, a lot of them knew French just because that was the happening country. It was, but there's a lot of Germans in America. Well, but there's there wasn't the really German Germans. culture prior to Goethe. I mean, there was I guess there was Lessing, who was a, a playwright, but like German culture really became a serious culture with Goethe, Schiller, Herder, Lessing. Like late 18th century, German was coming into its own as a real thing. Yeah. So our goal here is to make German the Greek of the American Empire. I've decided this. This is my my position, and I'm sticking with it. It's definitely a revolutionary act. But uh. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about English speakers. We just, you're not going to have access to, if you live in the empire, like you don't really need to learn another language. So necessarily things like Goethe, Dante, the French, like all kind of just fade in, in, into obscurity. But that wasn't the case in Goethe's time and wasn't the case in the first hundred years after his death. He was known outside of Germany. Yeah, and Real quick, he was, you know, his career, he wasn't just a writer. I mean, he he practiced a little bit of law. He was a public administrator for a long time. As you, right. I don't know if you mentioned, you know, he did plays. He was a play director in addition to writing plays. He did some natural science. He did, he discovered something. I forget, I read it a few weeks ago. I already forget something in optics about the, the nature of colors. Yeah, I don't, I don't, he did develop a theory of color, and he discovered also something in, uh, he proposed a theory in biology, in nat evolution, but it, you know, isn't, it isn't anything terribly important. But he was almost cutting edge in some scientific fields as late as, while also being cutting edge in literature, which is amazing. People could be a, poly, a, a polymath in the 14 or 1500s, but to be on the, the cutting edge in several different fields in 1800 is pretty amazing. Yeah, he hated, he sort of hated where science was going, which I think there's a lot of, I don't know if this is good for this episode, but stuff about Spengler and Goethe and like what he represents in that broader context. That's why I started reading Goethe in the first place is just because Spengler and Nietzsche referenced him. But, you know, he hated, he basically hated technics. He hated the instrumentalization of science. He, he, he thought of science as something that you just walk around and look like absurd. 
you know, like take a stroll through the woods and observe, maybe like take apart a tree or something and observe things. And he didn't like math. He hated math. He didn't think you could actually express anything with human meaning math. So he basically, you know, if you think of culture and civilization as like lyrics and then techniques, he was, he hated techniques and he loved lyrics, but he also loved the natural world and things that people who are just writers often don't do, you know, like policy, for example, political policy. Yeah, it certainly comes through in, in Faust. And you mentioned he was an administrator. He was a, he was, he spent about 10 years working for the government of the little, at the time, the tiny state of Weimar. And it was sort of, I mean, it was sort of optional. He had a relationship with the Duke and he got that position because not even because he was a good poet. I mean, he was noticed by the Duke for being a poet, but mainly he got that position because the Duke thought he was a bro and enjoyed hanging out with him. Uh, so the Duke was about 10 years younger than him and they would just drink and do shenanigans and Goethe started to get a reputation as corrupting the Duke, but the Duke still wanted him in the administration. So they came up with this deal where Goethe would pretend to be a government official and <laughs> he could get paid that way. And he, he actually was a good government official. He, he got into the, into the mining industry and managing Weimar's mines. I think they were, I don't know if it was coal or silver or, or whatever they were mining. And he took a, a lively interest in it because it sort of went along with his scientific interests. And on the one hand, it was good because it made him a more varied person. He had experience in the real world. And I'm sure a lot of, I can think of some examples of where that came into Faust and where he he that knowledge definitely affected how uh, how the play or the scenes that are in the play. On the other hand, it took about 10 years out of his life where he could have been crafting his ability in poetry a little bit better or producing more more plays more poems more novels which he just didn't do because there's some of these like barren periods where he's actually engaged in the real world yeah I, I i wonder though because he was probably still working on faust a little bit during that period because like mm -hmm. part two i mean he spent 40 or 50 i don't know some like most of his life putting that together and editing it and i think he just had to as part of his personal philosophy, like in order to let's I'll at least say in order to finish Faust part two, he had to have that period where he worked in government and tried to make things happen in the real world and had some failures. I think there was a silver mine that couldn't be brought online. The The Duke was like, I think the Duke was always strapped for money because it was this tiny place and they didn't have a lot of sources of money and they had old mines that had gone out of service. And he liked to keep an army and drill them. Like that was the Duke's, like one of his favorite things to do. That, was, that seems to be a common thing with these <laughs> yeah. like 18th century monarchs, like Peter the Great, Frederick the Great. They like just drilling their soldiers. Like, no, yeah, so, we have taxes to have an army. We don't have an army to defend the country. I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> so he was always trying to find. So he did send Goethe to try to bring a silver mine back online. But I think... I forget the reason, but it was just not economically feasible at that time to, so they had to cut down from, he had like 500 troops and then it was only like 100 or, it, yeah, it was it, a tiny force anyway. Yeah. And, and Goethe briefly was served as the administrator, I guess like you could say the secretary of defense of this <laughs> company sized army. So, uh, but let's get into uh, Faust, the Faust theme itself, because this is a bigger thing than Goethe and his life. 
and it isn't, it isn't just something that he came up with. It's a much older story. So the character Faust is based on a probably based on a real man. Uh, it's very contentious as to whether it's one man or two men or when he lived. But basically, this person is thought to have lived from about 1480 to 1530. So he would have been a contemporary of Martin Luther and was that Emperor Maximilian I, I think. He was a magician, a scholar, all around sort of gothic, weird guy. Uh, some stories say that he studied magic at the University of Krakow. I guess that was a, a discipline huh. you could get into back then. <laughs> and he became the basis of a bunch of stories, and these are called uh, chapter books, the Faust chapter books, that were popular in, in like the low literature of the time. And in, this, in the chapter books, the basic theme is that Faust, the magician scholar, makes a deal with the devil, and the devil will give him infinite power for a, peri- a contracted period of time. I think it's 40 years, usually 30 years, 40 years. And the devil will assist Faust in whatever he wants to do. So if he wants to drink all the time, bang lots of women, wield magic powers, destroy nations, whatever, conjure up Helen of Troy and sleep with her, whatever you want, whatever crazy shit you want. Mostly just sh- goof on people. Yeah. <laughs> and so he does it. In in different variations of the story, he does this, and then at the end, he once the contract runs out, then Satan can drag him off to hell. Now, there was a probably the first literary version of Faust was not done in Germany, believe it or not, but it was done in Britain by Thomas Marlowe. Thomas Marlowe, right? Oh, no, Christopher. Christopher, out of Thomas. Christopher Marlowe. Yeah, that sounded wrong. Christopher Marlowe is is the guy that wrote all of Shakespeare's plays, as as our audience knows well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he died at the age of 29, so he's a cool guy. But uh, he's probably his best known work is the I think it's called the it's the tragical history of the life of Dr. Faustus. Yeah, you know these titles, they're all like you'll see it listed differently, like the tragical history of Dr. Faustus, or yeah, the tragical life and history in life or whatever but something like that yeah but have you read uh, the marlowe play yeah i read some of the so i was actually getting into like some scholarly debate about it because um the historical faust is supposed to have studied in wittenberg and marlowe spells it vert vertnerberg or something like that and i i was like what is why is that and there's actually like journal articles in humanities journals where people argue over why that is because there's like, apparently there was um, a Lutheran connection and a Protestant connection to that spelling and that Marlowe was kind of making a social commentary at the time. Also, of course it's in translation. Uh, Cause I right. think the historical Faust where Wittenberg is where Martin Luther studied, isn't it? Yeah. So spelling yeah. it differently was like supposed to be some type of dig on, I don't know, but Marlowe's version, I read a little bit of the original version, and then I read all of the sort of more modern translated version, which I want to go back to the original because I, I think it sounded better. But it cleaves pretty close to that collection, the Historia. I think the, the original German folk one is like Historia von D. Johann Faustus. And yeah, it has a lot of the same notes, except kind of has a really heavy Christian component. He's constantly, there's about three 
or more scenes where Dr. Faustus has he starts to consider repenting. So in in this version, I think the contract's 24 years. That's yeah, that that sounds right. I guess I read this I think 14 years ago when I was in college. So I I don't really, really remember the Marlowe version, but 24 years, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so at at different points during this, you know, he starts to second guess. It, the the Faustus of Marlowe's version is pretty glib. He's not a deep character like Goethe's. He's basically just, he has the same kind of, I've learned everything from the academy. Now I'm going to start studying magic because I'm not satisfied with regular scholarship. And then he gets this opportunity with the devil to sell his soul. And he's very glib about it. He just, he, he kind of, he, he sort of has this almost atheistic, like, hell, that's not real. Ha ha ha. Sure. You can take my soul to hell. And then, <laughs> but like, it's a very strange to, for him to be acting so glib about it when the devil is in his presence performing magic, <laughs> you know, like I, I certainly would as a 21st century person in the face of such a, like such a thing, I would lose my glibness, let alone somebody from the, whenever that was 17th, 16th century. Yeah. So he, and he travels around, he, I think he like clowns on the Pope. That's one of the big scenes he oh. goes, he like breaks, a, I think a German out of prison there and him and Mephisto dress up as Pope's officers and say, they're going to take the prisoner away, but they just take him out of prison. And then the, and then the Pope is mad and he's yelling at people and Faustus commands the devil to make him invisible. And he starts like taking the Pope's wine and like pouring it on him and like throwing the food around and stuff. You could, and you could see how this would be riotously funny to people yeah. in, England circa, you know, 1600. Yeah, it does not translate, but in terms of like the entertainment value. So he does stuff like that. It's pretty petty. And then like guys try to kill him, like bandits will try to waylay him and he'll have a false head. They'll think they chopped his head off. But it was most of what he does. It's like Marlowe calls it conjuring. So it's mostly visual illusions more than like spells where you actually, I don't know. It's Harry Potter shit. Yeah, it's Harry Potter shit, but. Yeah, it, it actually is very Harry Potter. I, I think that's where it came from. But ultimately, in the end, he he does he does the thing with Helen of Troy. And in this version, he just has his scholar friends, and he's like, "Hey, you guys want to see something?" <laughs> and just does it as a parlor trick, and then uh, oh, falls in love with her. Yeah. And then falls in love with her and it's like, OK, well, I have to possess her. And that's one of the last scenes where he can potentially be redeemed. There, these, there's a good angel and a bad, bad angel that keeps speaking to him. And he the good angel will say, oh, you can still repent, Dr. Faustus. And he'll be like, maybe I should. And then the good angel's like, or you could have sex with Helen of Troy. And he's like, a better idea. <laughs> um, and he actually says it, it's interesting. Marlowe plays a lot with Christianity and redemption because. He basically shows Dr. Faustus in his version is a guy who is seeking being saved and immortality in everything except Christ. So he I think he literally says, like, I will find immortality in like the arms of Helen or whatever. So at the time, it was kind of a commentary on people and their relationship with it was a, it's a much more Christian work than Goethe's. Right. But and then, yeah, he tries to repent at like the 11th hour and it's just too late. It's like he's sort of 
whisked away. And uh, in in the Marlowe and in the original folk version, it's noted that when he is the devil does take him, he doesn't just like kind of grab him by the hand and take him away. He like brains him in the folk version. I was reading the end of it. His like eyeballs and brains are on the walls. His um, it's in a university when his hour comes and he's like, oh, you know, my scholar friends like I this bad thing has to happen now. So like leave me alone. And then they go to find him later. And like his like the devil like grabbed him and like swung him like sort of incredible Hulk style, like from wall to wall, like smashing his brains out and then took his soul. (laughs) So that is yeah, that's the Marlowe version. So how does the Goethe version differ? I mean, I, I can think of a, a few ways. Goethe basically reworked the whole yes. story. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, com- it's a completely different work. The only thing that's preserved is some of the individual plot points. But the actual texture of it, and the, right off the bat, unlike, so the stereotypical Faustian bargain and that whole idea of selling your soul to the devil or whatever even preserved into like the blues legend of uh was it robert johnson that like famous blues musician black blues musician from whatever i don't know anything about yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) i apologize for bringing it up Uh, (laughs) a little low culture american is selling your soul to the devil but in faust in goethe's faust it's he doesn't sell his soul to the devil he makes a wager and also God makes a way. So it's actually, it starts off with God and the devil and Mephistopheles talking. And it's, so it's kind sort of, of like, a, it's like the book of Job. It's a reverse Job because instead of, so in Job, of course, you know, Satan says they're arguing about things and God's like, look at my servant Job. He's the best. And Satan says, that's only because you treat him so well, treat him poorly. So God actually kind of, strikes you know job with all these awful calamities and then job has to you know accept his fate and still love god in this version mephistopheles is he's kind of like a a sympathetic figure he laments man's plight on earth all the angels are hanging out with god and they're like oh your creation is so great you know everything's great and mephistopheles is like i don't know you know men have it so hard it's depressing And then God goes, well, what about Faust? You know, just like, what about Job? And he's like, oh, you know, I know Faust. He's, uh, he depresses me too. And God's like, well, he's always striving and that's what I like. And then they make the deal that if the devil can, if Mephistopheles can corrupt him. So it's kind of left open-ended, but yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a reverse Job in the sense that the way that Faust is tempted is with not punishment, but pleasure. Which, if you think about it, is perhaps a more effective form of temptation. The wager itself in the in uh, Goethe's version is, I, and I, this is one of the few plays that I poems or anything where I actually know a few of the lines. The wager is, "Werd ich zum Augenblicke sagen, verweile doch du bist so schön, dann magst du mich in Fessen schlagen, dann will ich gern so grunde gehen." So, were I to say to a moment. Terry, now you are so pretty, then you may clap me in ch- in irons and drag me off to hell. Yes. So it's like that feeling that you have when you are perfectly satisfied with the world, which happens maybe a few times in your life, 
if he ever has that, then he's damned. And Faust is so cynical and so uh, experienced and so nihilistic. I think, I guess nihilistic would be, well, nihilistic. Uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe I shouldn't go that far, but he's he's so greedy for experience that he's he is convinced that he could never be satisfied, no matter what physical pleasures or mental pleasures the devil could give him. He's like, yeah, that's a that's a fair deal. I'm uh, you're never gonna get me. Yeah, it's a little bit more plausible than Marlowe's Doctor Faustus, but it's it is still a little um, it it doesn't translate super well to modern audiences because kind of like the concept of infinity like in ancient times it was just like a large number but now we have these like computer programs and like the idea of space and stuff some of these ideas like oh i i can make this bet with this magical being because people really believed in like the devil coming and doing things to them back then in a way that they don't now um so that might have made more sense at uh, the time. i mean i don't know I, I think it makes perfect sense now uh I mean, as far as the devil, I mean, Goethe certainly didn't believe in that stuff. He's just using it as a metaphor. And I don't think the I don't think most of his audience would have seen it as much more than a metaphor. Oh, definitely. It's I mean, that's debatable. But I think the the thing about modern audiences is I think it is very relatable to modern audiences because you have what people nowadays call the hedonic treadmill where Mm -hmm. you well, I've uh, uh, banged all those hookers and did all that blow, and I still feel like blah, whatever. I mean, think of uh, what's it, Hunter Biden. Is Hunter <laughs> does Hunter Biden ever achieve a moment of sat- of actual satisfaction or tranquility? No, but the Republican Party does. <laughs> you <laughs> At can his see videos. It. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> You can see it in his eyes, though, in his pictures. Like Hunter Biden is just—that's right, Hunter. Which yeah, one Hunter. is the 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 degenerate one, not the dead one? Yeah, Hunter Biden's the is dead the one, one that's alive. Hunter's, yeah, very much living. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think the the Faust bargain is completely understandable. But the thing but about do you know the Dan Faust- Bilzerian? Do you know that guy? He's no. like a yeah. Uh, well, all right, you don't want to know him, but he was like a pre-Andrew Tate. Which maybe you don't even know who that is. It's just these guys who make an online living selling like uh, supplements when they're taking steroids and they have a they sell a lifestyle of like, look, I'm on a motorboat with a bunch of like beautiful 20 year olds in bikinis. We're all going to have sex later. You can live like this, too, if you like buy my course or like listen to my podcast and like buy my pre-workout. Yeah, it's kind of what we're doing here. Uh, no, what was I going to say? Uh, talking about Faust. The hedonic treadmill? Yes. Uh, and I think it's still, it, oh, it's still relatable today. And, and moreover, I mean, the, the reason we brought up the wager, I mean, it is the central piece of the first part of Faust is that wager with the devil. But because he isn't using the traditional deal anymore the deal with satan it really changes the whole everything else in the play has to change in order to make sense um and i say play but really i guess it has been staged as a play but it's often called a pocket drama it's 
it's really hard to stage Faust because of all the different scenes and it's very long. Yeah. And even if you, you just stage part one, it's it's really sort of hard to do. So it's often just regarded as a, a book that's meant to be read and not actually played out on the stage. But so first of all, once you've changed to this wager where once Faust is satisfied, then the deal is off. Well, now, or the, then he gets taken to hell and the devil wins. Well, now that, like, now there's no definite period in which he can do all the shenanigans. And also, the shenanigans aren't really going to be enough for someone like Goethe doing a bunch of uh, pranks on the Pope or uh, pranks on highway robbers or pranks on his uh, scholar bros with Helen of Troy. None of that's really, I mean, there can be a little bit of that, but it's not really going to make the, the story very interesting unless he can. He kind of comments on that. Uh, I don't know if you remember in the beginning, one of the first things they do after uh, they go to that bar and the devil. Oh, to our box Keller? Yeah, yeah, with the fire wine. Uh-huh. There, there's that scene where he pretends the devil, Mephistopheles says, Oh, you know, to the like three or four guys that are drinking there being boisterous, like what kind of wine do you want? And then he makes it appear in the table like he has them drill a hole uh-huh. in in the wood and put like a wax stopper in there. And then when they take it out, the kind of wine that they wanted comes out. But if they drop any on the floor, it lights on fire. OK, so and it's a really tiny scene. And I think that it's Goethe's little because it basically Mephistopheles is like hey, do you think we should go? Because, like, these guys are on fire and they're going to attack us. And he's like, yeah, I want to leave right away. Like, this is boring. So I think it's kind of his commentary on, like, that that kind of stuff is stupid. Where, like, he, that his play isn't going to be about little pranks played on people and, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, because I think th- that scene, I know, is one of the older scenes in it. It was in some of the earlier versions of Goethe's Faust. Um, but I... I he, he definitely reworked it and it would make sense. Yeah. That he was reworking it in such a way that it could now just show that, yeah, that he's kind of done with the pranks and he wants to move on to more interesting stuff. We kind of skipped over how it all happened, how it starts off. I mean, there was the wager with God and the devil, but the way or with Mephistopheles it's, it's left a little ambiguous in Christopher Marlowe's Faust. Mephisto is not Satan himself. I think that's made explicit uh-huh. in Goethe's Faust. It's never made explicit, but there's a few, like there's one time when the witch, I think the witch that brews the potion, the youth potion for Faust right after the bargain refers to Mephistopheles as Satan. And he says, I don't like that name anymore. Is everybody yeah. knows it? Cause I'm so, not, I'm not really sure if he's supposed to be the devil or a devil. I, it's implied that he's, the devil by Goethe, but it's never fully explicitly stated. And he calls himself a devil a lot, but it's sort of like a turn of phrase, like devils like us or, but when they do first meet, you know, Faust is some of the, I think some of the best poetry, at least as translates into English, uh, luckily for people that want to read some of this is in the beginning, uh, Faust's lamentations on, how he's depressed about being a yeah, lifelong academic. I think this is probably one of the most famous uh, monologues in German literature at all. Uh, he's he's 
Faust was in his study talking about how bored he is with uh, with life and with studying, and he says. Habe nun auch Philosophie, Juristerei und Medizin und leider auch Theologie, doch ausstudiert mit heißem Bemund. Da stehe ich nun, ich Amateur und bin so klug als wie so, als wie so war. And he just goes on like that. And so he's saying, uh, now I've got philosophy, jurisprudence and theology uh, thoroughly studied uh, with, with hot effort. But here I stand, poor fool that I am no more clever than when I, than before. Yeah. And he just, and he, so he's, he's bewailing his, that he can't satisfy his need for knowledge and that he's just bored with the basic conventional subjects. And then Mephisto like bust, bursts into the room in the form of a poodle. And well, he comes, he comes back with it. Well, maybe I'm skipping ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, the, he, uh, his friends in the in the very beginning with the with the monologue like the soliloquy part he, there's this um other scholar uh wagner oh yeah his, his fam- famulus his like sidekick <laughs> yeah he kind of represents yeah he represents like dopey he represents everything that would make a scholar not want something more it's like he's just totally satisfied doing his job of reading books and learning them and maybe teaching them to lower students and that's it. And so he comes in and he says nerd in modern academia or in the government. Yeah. He's an ivory tower egghead that has no interest in the world. Yeah. Um, outside of like what's in the book. Um, and this even, so, so he comes in and they have a conversation and he's like, cheer up, you know, it's, we have it great. And then, uh, Faust is even more depressed after talking to this guy and he's about to commit suicide because he, you know, he's a doctor and everything. So he has all kinds of things that could be used as poison. Um, and he's prevented because it's Easter Eve and it's like midnight and the bells ring and it sort of gives him like a nostalgic feeling and he feels Mm -hmm. a little bit better. And then him and Wagner are taking a walk in the Easter afternoon festivities and discussing and Faust is kind of laying out his problem where he wants to, you know, soar like and accomplish things and experience the world and not just be a scholar and Wagner completely doesn't get it. And then a dog starts following him and the dog follows Faust back to his, his room and then becomes Mephistopheles. Right. And when he's in the room, that's the, the part where Faust is trying to summon the earth spirit. If I remember right. Yes, that is, I think that's before uh, Wagner actually comes in in the beginning, because okay. he's he's he goes through his whole thing about how academia he's completed. He's like finished academia, like he's he's learned everything. So then he's like, so I'm starting to study magic now because maybe that'll make me happy. And he's he starts reading something about the the macrocosmos and that sort of intimidates him. It's sort of it, Goethe kind of makes a commentary about like the infinity versus the nature spirit and Faust chooses to summon the nature spirit Mm -hmm. uh, who basically just doesn't respect him. He's like, who is this man? I I think he uses the term Ubermensch uh, derisively like the earth spirits. Like who is this Ubermensch that summoned, like who is this great man that summoned me? And, and Faust is like afraid of him uh, because he looks scary, you know, like a supernatural being. Uh, so then that's when he's about to commit suicide because he's so depressed that right. he tried the, magic. The spirit just like makes fun of him and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> goes away. <laughs> <laughs> so he, it's like, 
it's like born uh like born too too late to be an earth spirit but too early to be like a loser like wagner it's like he's stuck in between um but yeah so then the second scene in his study is when the dog is there who sort of starts to transform and then faust is like what's going on because he noticed there was something magical about him when he first saw the dog which wagner didn't notice uh like trails of flames or whatever behind him and he kind of uses like a some magical words to try to make him reveal his true form and then he becomes mephistopheles in the form of like a traveling scholar and then that's where we get the uh the deal actually there's a weird scene where they talk for a little bit and then he says i'd like to make you a deal and maybe i can make you a deal later and and faust is like yeah sure you have you know where i am and he goes to leave and he can't because there's a pentagram on the windowsill or on the for whatever reason there's like arcane symbols all over faust's room and the devil can't leave like he could come in but he couldn't go and he has to leave by the same way he came in there's all these rules and faust starts to get kind of greedy about it and he's like oh what are you going to give me to let you leave uh but the devil just conjures up mephistopheles just conjures up some spirits to sing him to sleep and then mice i think he like summons mice to chew out the pentagram so that he can leave and then he comes back later and then they make the deal it's one of those things in older literature that probably like the pacing probably made more sense to people back then that's something yeah, I, to trip up modern audiences i don't remember that stuff but you know what what's interesting about Goethe's faust uh, one of i mean among other things is that he it's it's almost is like an epic poem in that it was because it was composed over his whole lifetime. You just have layers of this poem that have been sort of glued together piece by piece. And so it doesn't, some of it might not seem like it fits or it doesn't really make sense why it's there, but rather than just having a poem that was conceived of and, and written down in a month or a year, you have this thing that was worked on his whole life. So there's a lot of parts to it that, might not make sense and you have to really analyze it and to figure out why it's there and, and where what layer of the poem does it belong to yeah when i went back through it the first time i read it i didn't i didn't actually get it and then when i went back again a lot of these scenes like there's a lot of there's just a lot of stuff that happens in them that like i don't know if you remember when after they make the deal and mephistopheles says okay let's go you know travel the world and do things and then a student comes in to get advice about what he should study and thinks that Mephistopheles is Faust. Do you remember that uh -huh. scene? No, I don't. At first, it's, I just thought it was a throwaway scene because he, he's like sarcastically, you know, Mephistopheles just says that like kind of like imagine an undergraduate and like a freshman coming to their advisor and being like, what classes should I take? You know, freshman year and sophomore year and junior year, et cetera. And the, the the advisor being like, well, it doesn't really matter. This is all shit. <laughs> and the, when I went through it the second time, I realized that that's kind of old Faust who hates the Academy sort of speaking to his younger self. There's a lot of contextual throughout the work. There's a lot of instances where the way Goethe writes it, it's ambiguous whether mephistopheles is actually a separate entity or whether he's like inside of faust uh-huh and it leads me to believe that he's sort of the cynical faust is a romantic figure and mephistopheles is like his cynical jaded side like there's the way yeah. it's written some I of could, the scenes i could see that 
Uh, I had never thought of that, but that that makes sense. I mean, there's very few times when they're in the same place and people see them as two people. I think the only time that happens literally is when he's courting Gretchen and Mephistopheles is talking to her girlfriend, Martha, Uh because it would be very difficult for that to be the same person. But other than that, the way the scenes are written, uh, like whenever Mephistopheles is conjuring something or when they're dueling, when he's, when the duel happens with Gretchen's brother and all that, if you read it, it could be read as almost like a Tyler Durden, you know, fight club. Did you see that? Yes. (laughs) Yes. There's another, you know, uh, Mephistopheles makes Faust invite him in three times. And I think there's actually references in fight club to that. Like when Tyler Durden makes the Ed Norton character promise three times not to talk about fight club Uh or something like that. So there's a lot of uh, pop culture that draws, you know, obviously heavily on Faust, but some of it's quite literal. So, yeah, so then they leave and head to the witches. I think the next scene is the witches place where they um, get a potion of uh, a youth. uh, youth. And that's that's so that Faust can seduce Gretchen. Yes. And I think there's a scene when when they're waiting because the witch isn't there and there's two like monkeys or apes or something that are stirring her cauldron for her, uh, like like animal familiars. And Faust sees in a mirror, uh, not himself like a normal mirror, but an image of like it's like perfect divine femininity or something like a like the archetype of a beautiful woman. Yeah. And he's transfixed by that. And Mephistopheles notices that. I think that also gives you in the first Harry Potter. There's a mirror like she ripped that off where you don't see yourself, but you see what you want. Well, I was going to say it sounds like some kind of uh, like tranny thing where <laughs> you like see yourself in the mirror and you're a hot woman. You're like, oh, yeah. And you've got <laughs> those enormous breasts and you're a shop teacher. <laughs> um. So I think that's when – oh, no, that's after the Auerbach bar. They go to the bar and clown on those guys, and Faust is so not into it. Then Mephistopheles takes him to get the youth potion so they can continue traveling and doing things, and he notices the, the magic mirror. I believe its function is to show what the person wants. So then he goes, oh, okay, he wants women, so that's how I'll get him. That's how I'll make him satisfied with women. And so he – a lot of the first act, or sorry, the, not first act, but first part of Faust is concerned with uh, Faust's courting of this girl, Gretchen, who I think she's like 14. It or... says she's older than 14. Okay, okay. <laughs> and he, he sees her, I mean, it's it's almost ham-fisted in how symbolic it is. He, he meets her on the way out of confession at church and tries to pick her up there. And she like puts him off and he gets really angry about that and goes to Mephisto and says, you got to get me this girl tonight. (laughs) Yeah. Like right now. And there's some other, there's another part. There's there's like another deal there that happens. Well, he says, he, he says, I want that girl. And Mephisto, Mephistopheles, I keep mixing them up because it's Mephisto and Marlowe's. You can say Mephisto. I mean, in, in some versions, it just says Mephisto for Mephisto. Yeah, yeah, they're interchangeable. He says, I can't just control her because she just came from confession and she doesn't oh, even have anything to confess. She's yeah, right. She doesn't have anything to confess. I can't control her. 
yeah, she's without <laughs> sin. So he so then Faust goes, well, what what the fuck is the point of you if you can't get me what I want? I'm going to break the contract. And then Mephistopheles is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me figure something. I'll I'll get you to meet her. You know, I can do something. And so they come up with this plan to because, uh, you know, at the time, like a strange man can't just so like walk up to a woman like you can't actually do that. Right. Um, you have to have a, usually a mutual friend introduce you. Right. Um, so they figure that out with a little plan and then come up with the really um, kind of bizarre. Another thing that doesn't translate that well is the gifts of the jewels. Uh, Mephistopheles goes, oh, I'll, I can get you these jewels to because Faust wants to give her a gift to like woo her. And he knows a buried treasure somewhere. So he digs up the buried treasure and they kind of magic into her room and put it in her trunk and then magic out. And when they're in there, actually Faust sort of flips the switch. So originally he's just like horny for Gretchen. It's right. like a purely sexual thing. He's like, I want this. He looks literally, almost literally says like this hot young body, like right now. <laughs> um, and when he's in her bedroom, he, he becomes like enamored with her. Like femininity uh, and innocence and how, yeah. how sweet she is. And he wants her even more. Yeah. And it, but it becomes a little bit more romantic than just purely sexual. He actually starts to feel like tender feelings or whatever you want to call it. Um, so then they leave and she finds the jewels and she's like, this is incredible. And she either shows it to her mom or her mom sees it. And her mom is a devout Christian. And it's like, this is, you know, this is like bad, bad juju to just have these like magic jewels in here. So they give it to the church and there's a little bit of commentary how like the church just gobbles it up and like, doesn't even notice. Yeah. And Mephisto is super pissed off about that. <laughs> yeah. And then Faust just he goes, finds out he's been duped into giving jewels to the church. Yeah. And Faust goes, do it again. Like get some fresh jewels for her right now. And he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but he does. He gets fresh jewels. I think they're even, you know, a little bit more expensive, finer or whatever than the first time. Put it in the trunk again. This time she um, doesn't give it to her mom, but she takes it to her neighbor, Martha, who is the mark that Mephistopheles has set for their introductory person. Right. So she keeps the jewels at Martha's so that nobody finds them. And they just kind of, for their own pleasure, put them on and look at themselves in the mirror like they're highborn women. And then Mephistopheles, because Martha's husband has been away, presumed dead, but she doesn't have proof of death. So she can't remarry and she can't do certain things. So he comes to her pretending to be a traveling news bringer of her husband's death. And that's how he meets her and then gets and then he says Faust is the second witness because I guess you need two witnesses for a mm -hmm. death certificate. So that's how they make the introduction. And it's left ambiguous whether he's lying. But when he's talking about the death of Martha's husband, he says that he was um, living with some Italian woman like they, they got a treasure from uh, Turkey or so like the Sultan because he was in the military. Uh, but he he like spent it on this other woman and like had other children. And, <laughs> and she, yeah, yeah. Um, it's left ambiguous whether that's he's that's he's relating painful true facts to this random woman Martha or whether he's just making it up to be, you know, a jerk. Uh, but then so then Faust so comes in. Able to like finagle getting Faust in, into meeting Gretchen. 
Right. So he brings Faust to sign the death certificate. And then he says, oh, is is Gretchen going to be there? It's like, yeah. So then they start talking. Yeah. And, and it's I don't know if we referred to her by both names, but she's Gretchen, but she's also Margaret. Yeah, that's another thing that will throw off English readers. Yeah, because uh, it doesn't it doesn't explain that Gretchen, it, the the German version of Margaret Gretchen is a nickname. And it, and it also just so happens that Goethe's first love, like his Beatrice or his his elementary school, middle school love was a girl named Gretchen. So, uh, yeah, just just to finish up, we should at least close out part one here. So Gretchen Faust meet Gretchen or Faust succeeds in seducing her, gets her pregnant. <laughs> and Which he doesn't she, know. Well, she finds, she finds later. Faust doesn't know. Right. He just sleeps with her, and then he, he finally sleeps with her. I mean, she falls in love with him, but the the thing that's in the way of them sleeping together is her mom. And so he gives her a sleeping potion to drop into her mom's drink. Right. Which ends up accidentally killing her, the mother. Right. Uh, but they can, like, you know, make love in the house, uh, like teenagers, you know, like sneaking teenagers. And then after they do that, Faust just disappears into the woods to just hang out alone for some amount of time. Um, and I, that scene, it's a little weird, but Goethe is always writing about like the healing powers of nature. It, it's a little strange that somebody would just, it's, it's just, it's a weird scene, but the, the devil's like, Oh, what are we doing here? This is boring. And he's like, you, you know, you can't understand the beauty of nature. And then Mephistopheles, he kind of hints that Gretchen, you know, is upset back. It's almost like in some ways Faust is like more morally suspect. There's some scenes where Mephistopheles, like you could make the argument, he's a more moral person than Faust. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's pretty ambiguous, which is another contextual reason why I think Goethe is at least playing with the idea that Mephistopheles and Faust are two aspects of one person. Yeah. Two minds. But yeah, so she she's really depressed because he left her. He just kind of disappeared after sleeping with her. And then he comes back to make her feel better and woo her. I, it's kind of a it sort of seems like he's getting tired of her or like he doesn't want to get tied down or maybe he anticipates that he will be satisfied with her. So he's afraid of it. it it's not explicitly stated why he's not just spending all of his time with Gretchen after successfully courting her. Mm -hmm. um, but he goes to play music outside of her window. And in the meanwhile, her brother who's in the military hears that she slept with somebody like it's a gossip going around. And he had previously been really proud of his sister because she's this like beautiful, pure young girl uh, that nobody can reproach. And he was really proud of that. And it like devastated him when he heard that. So he comes back to their town and uh, sees Faust and Mephistopheles, or if they're the same person, either way, outside of her window, getting ready to serenade her and like, attacks him and ch you know, challenges him to a duel. Because uh, he rightly assumes that Faust is the man that deflowered her. Right. And then Faust wins the duel, kills Valentin. Faust and Mep Mephistopheles. But again, if you read that scene clearly... 
it's like Mephistopheles says, oh, let I'll parry, you thrust, I'll parry. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, let me take, it's like, uh, let me take partial control of your player character. Like, I'll, I'll make sure that we win. Like, we're, because <laughs> um, there's, at no point does, uh, at no point does, uh, what, what was her brother's name? Uh, Valentine. Valentine. Yeah. Yeah. At no point does he say, I'm fighting two people. Um, he does say, I must be, the devil must be against me or something like that because his hand starts to go numb. Like, he, basically, the Mephistopheles, like, bewitches him so that he has to lose. Um, but, yeah, so. so and as he's, in, as he's, like, lying, as he's lying there dying after, you know, after he's been stabbed, he uh, he calls his sister a whore and says she's going to hell. Many times. <laughs> yeah, cause, yeah, so Faust and Mephistopheles run away because people are going to come out and they're going to get in trouble. Uh, and yes, she finds the body, her and Martha. And yeah, he just completely condemns her and says, you know, the, the blow that, you know, killed me was not the sword, but hearing about you being a whore or something like that. So it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So they do the same thing again where they just, Faust just disappears on her um, this time, instead of going into like a pure nature scene, he goes into, he starts climbing a mountain for the Valpurgis night, uh, festival thing. It's kind of like a, it's, it's like April a, 30th and it's like a, a witches and goblins, uh, pagan ceremony. Yeah. And the way Goethe writes it, it's almost like burning man. Uh, there's even vendors selling stuff like witches selling, you know, eye of Newton, toe of frog and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, because it's, it's one of those things where Mephistopheles is like, oh, I know, like I need to get his mind off of this woman. So let's go party. Um, and he has him like dancing with younger witches, you know, not not like old hags, but you know, Faust at one point he's like, I, I don't like this. I was dancing with that witch over there and like a mouse crawled out of her mouth. <laughs> And Mephistopheles is like, that's fine. At least it wasn't a gray mouse. <laughs> um, and then I think Faust has a vision of Gretchen in chains and with like blood across her throat, like as if her throat's being cut. And he knows that she's in trouble. And Mephistopheles knows she's in trouble. And he again gets mad at Mephistopheles for not telling him. But it ends up what happened was she was pregnant. She had a total mental breakdown from the death of her mom and her brother, both more or less at the hand of her lover, has the baby and kills it, commits infanticide, uh, which was not super uncommon back then for like extremely poor women who didn't have anyone to support them and who figured the baby would die. They would like drown it, you know? Yeah. So she does that. She's caught. She's convicted of it. And sentenced to death, and she's, you know, chained up in a uh, prison cell. And Faust says, you got to get her out. And Mephistopheles says, well, I can't. Again, he kind of says, I can't do that. And then he goes, well, you better do it or else I'm going to break the deal. Mephistopheles goes, okay, well, I'll do what I can. I'll confuse the guards. You can get in there and, if, you know, you can get her out. So they go and, and he, do he that. Just, he, like, can't lure her out. She, like, won't come with him. Yeah, it's actually a pretty heart-rending scene. 
um, she's like delirious and pretty clearly insane. She thinks he's the executioner when he first comes in and she's pleading for her life. And then when she realizes it's him, she's clearly unhinged and he says, let's go. And she, she can't wrap her head around the idea of getting away. Like she believes she's guilty and that like if she left the jail, like she can't leave the jail, like the jail cell is like her own feelings of like guilt and everything. So for her, it's, she, she just, she starts saying, Oh, why don't you stay? Like as if they can just stay there together in this jail cell. Right. Uh, so eventually Mephistopheles goes, we got to go. The guards are going to wake up or come to. So they leave her there and she's executed. But the voice of God sort yeah, of towards see, the very end says she's saved. Yeah. I think doesn't Mephisto on the way out says uh, she's condemned. Yeah. Condemned or judged. Maybe yeah. one of those two judged. Yeah. That's the end of part one. Uh, we're not going to cover part two because it's it's a huge thing. But what's the uh, what would People you say should the, read part two, though? Yeah, we, we will read part two. What what is the main difference between part one and part two? Like what is what why what is the thematic? Whole, why is part one like can we just treat it as its own work? Well, it is a self-contained story. Um, part two is not. If you just read part two. Part one makes a lot more sense as a work when you read both of them together uh, because it's just kind of a depressing semi-tragedy um, by itself. I think people call it the Gretchen tragedy. Uh-huh. Um, part two is extremely complex and convoluted with a ton of arcane symbolism and characters from Christianity and paganism you know, Greek and Roman mythology, real historical figures, semi-real, you know, legendary, all acting together, all being called up. Uh, and, you know, Faust is doing things in the real world. He's doing things that are magical. It spans a long time. It spans basically from the end of... So I guess he's about 20 or 30 after he got his youth potion. So from from that point after part one to the end of part two, he's a hundred. So it spans like at least 70 years mm-hmm. as opposed to the Gretchen tragedy, which spans one year, maybe. And she has a baby. So it spans at least nine months. Although I think it's, isn't Faust supposed to be older in the scenes in the study or not like old, old, but maybe thirties. Yeah. 40s. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, originally he's supposed to be like 50 or something, and then he gets a reversal from the youth potion of 30 years. Okay. So he might be 60, and then he was 30, or something like that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. All right. So he's like middle-aged to elderly, like getting into older age. Because I think there's also a line where he says, I'm too old to, like, adventure, you know, do, you know, like, pick up women and do stuff like that, but too young to be totally without desire so he's in this period in his life where he wishes he could party but like his you know his body like can't do it anymore kind of thing yeah so why does why does he never get satisfied in part one i mean he what other temptations does he have he has he has gretchen uh you know i i think a lot of people uh Younger men would be would say, yeah, I've 
if they had a similar experience with a, a girl, they would be like, all right, that's it. I'm, I'm happy right now. Like just uh, stop time for like, you know, two, five minutes here so I can enjoy this. Uh, and they would lose the wager right there. But Faust doesn't lose on Gretchen. He doesn't lose on Auerbach's Keller or, or any drinking or partying. Does he get any, does Mephisto give him any higher pleasures? Does he give him any pleasures of like understanding or deeper knowledge? I don't, I can't recall him doing that, at least in part one. No, you know, I think that the reason why these are broken up and it makes sense that they're broken up is they're very disjointed. Like the first one is really Goethe's attempt at writing a tragedy or I, I know you want to discuss whether it's a tragedy or not. Yeah. But his attempts at something, either a tragedy or a commentary on tragedy uh, or a neo tragedy. Whereas the second part is much more intellectual. I mean, Faust is being given the ability to affect the world and to exert his will in the world and to do things that would make a man of action and will, you know, eventually satisfied to like see his works uh, flourish or exemplified in the world. In the yeah, in the first part, he's just being offered like pretty crass stuff, like drunken. A bar, drunken time, uh, sex with a young, beautiful woman who's, you know, chaste, and uh, and then it, and then it just, you know, a relationship with her. He could have had that, um, and then the witchy stuff, whatever he could have experienced at the Valpurgis so night. It is sort of the the distinction between between the romantic man and the warrior man. Um, I think it's one in a few of Shakespeare's plays. Or there used to be this idea that man went through seven stages in his life. First, he was a, a baby. Then he was a, uh, a schoolboy. Then a romantic lover. Then the highest point was a warrior. And then a scholar. And then I think a clown. And then something else. But that it's the stage three and four are, are romantic and warrior. And so it seems like the first part, you could say, well, this is his romantic stage. And then this is his his warrior stage. And I guess, you know, in that regard, it, it does sort of mirror Goethe's life as well. Um, Goethe straddled two periods of European literature. He was in the romantic storm and stress movement in Germany, and probably he was the leading light of that movement. And then he was sort of forgotten in the 1790s, 1800s. Uh, he not forgotten, but he wasn't on the forefront anymore of literature. He wasn't in popular consciousness. He was in, like, other writers knew him and had correspondence with him, but he yeah. wasn't putting out popular works. Yeah, he was, like, beyond that stuff. And he was going out and doing uh, doing things in the real world and uh, creating oh, this works like Faust. I mean, there, there are some other ones that he did later in life that are much more mature than Sorrows of Young Werther. Um, but anyway, so... Getting back to the idea of, is this a tragedy or a comedy? Um, you know, in the strict sense, a tragedy, or to use the... In the strict sense, a tragedy has to be where the protagonist is morally a little bit better than us, or at least on our level, and then he, because of some flaw in his character, suffers for it, but he suffers just about the right amount or maybe a little bit more than he deserves based on that metric i don't think you can consider faust part one 
a tragedy because Faust, well, is Faust worse than us, the audience? Like, is... I don't think so. <laughs> uh, there's, I don't think... He's better than us and he's worse than us. because he... I don't think it's a tragedy, but not for that reason. Um, I think what it's missing is the... What's what's it called when, like the cathartic, uh, like the Oedipus putting his eyes out, part of the tragedy? Uh, Do you know that kind of like, that that calamitous end? Yeah, that, that like doesn't the, that doesn't happen. I mean, I guess we could say that Gretchen dying uh, is that calamitous end, or if we if we regarded Gretchen as the main character, which is probably not defensible, but. We could say that she's the she tragic suffered. figure. She's the tragic figure, but she's saved at the end. Like Goethe didn't have the heart to kill her up to damn her to hell at the end. Uh, I don't know if he, or maybe it, maybe he didn't have the heart to do it, or maybe it makes sense. Like I was thinking, like if Gretchen is a woman, which she is, it makes sense that she is saved despite all the horrible things that she does because she can't actually act in the world because she's a woman. So it would be absurd to throw her into hell. Uh, I mean, I. You know, I, I think Goethe was probably thinking along similar lines there. So I, I don't think we can really uh, import any judgment of tragedy on Gretchen. She just is there. But Faust, he's both better than us and he's worse than us, I think. He's better than us in that he most people aren't as driven uh, and as, uh, as he mm-hmm. is. But on the other hand, he does make a deal with the devil. And, I mean, it's that is pretty much the definition of being a bad person. <laughs> I mean, well, just, it's really, it's really hard to get around that and to say, well, this is a good guy. It's, it is, except I think all of that is being accounted for in the work. So I think Goethe is making choices. So like, for example, the choice of with Gretchen, he doesn't want his morality is that what happened with her is not what, pe- you know, at the time people would have said, Oh, she's awful. He, he was kind of a libtard with that sort of stuff. Like he, he had a lot of, oh, the circumstances. You know, like right, right. The socioeconomic factors. Let's be honest with ourselves here. Well, he, he was, I mean, okay. On on a the question of pure Christian, hardcore, like um, Lutheran or Calvinist morality. On the question of Calvinist, Calvinist morality, puritanical, he would be libtarded on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Faust, I would say if he was writing a tragedy, Faust would have had to, you know, when Gretchen was, um, executed, like cut off his tongue or something so that he could never speak to Mephistopheles again, like some kind of fitting tragic end to like, or like cut his hands off so he could no longer be a scholar or something like that. Uh But, uh, what he does instead, and then this is what, you know, bleeds into part two, but he continues to live and to strive. So the whole thing is predicated on you can do things that so Christianity is predicated on you can do things that are wrong. You can sin if you ask forgiveness. Um, and then Old Testament morality, you know, with Job is like, as long as you just are faithful to God, you know, whatever, you're, you're good. Um, Goethe is trying to put forward a morality of, yeah, you can do things that are basically objectively wrong. But if you continue to try to do what's right. Like that's the way to be um, saved or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, because, yeah, if you just take 
the Gretchen tragedy, yeah, there's really no excuse. I mean, there's really no excuse for like an older man who's magicked into the body of a younger man to seduce a younger woman, bang her, get her pregnant, kill her mom and her brother, and then leave her to be executed for infanticide of their love child. I mean, that's yeah, that, that's really... all. That's all pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's about as bad as he could have done with what he had to work with, you know. Um, like so, I mean, he could have killed their friend. Shouldn't it be classed as a comedy? Because you know, it's not ha ha funny, but it's it is a comedy in the sense that Faust is lower than us uh, morally. I mean, at least on on maybe not on the level that Goethe is possible. Yes, part one, he is. But that's why I'm saying it's. I think Goethe is trying to subvert. I think he presents Faust as a lower than, you know, debatably lower than audience character. However, who is not punished, who's kind of let off. And then he, but in the second half, it counterbalances it. So I think, and this is, I mean, influenced by Nietzsche, but I think what Goethe is trying to do is like beyond tragedy. So like a tragedy would be a self-contained event that happens. And then the punishment, Whereas Goethe creates that unit, but doesn't, it's not a self-contained unit and then it continues on. So he like breaks the tragic cycle. But and I think we should, we should uh, add here that, uh, you know, skip ahead and say that Faust is saved at the end of part two when he's carried off by, he's about to be dragged into hell because mm-hmm. he, he's finally satisfied with, with, with his works. And God like saves him by sending a choir of boys to go rescue him from <laughs> momentarily distracted by how hot they are. And, you know, so it has a happy ending. Uh, the devil loses out. Uh, the guy who's the protagonist who, according to good, his morality is good, but according to common morality would be bad. He's saved. So it's, if you regard it according to Goethe's morality of ever striving, him being saved is the correct reward for his life. And so in that regard, it's a comedy. But if you say that he's been this horrible, if you look at it from the point of view of common morality, he's been doing all these horrible things his whole life and he's saved anyway. Then it makes it, I think it makes it a farce or a, a um, it puts it in the ironic mode yes. of literature because he's just, He's just been going around killing and doing horrible things to people, uh, destroys this beautiful, like, innocent girl for no reason other than his own lust. And and he just gets away with it. He just he, he can't seem to do any. He can't. He's never punished for anything he does. Yeah, he wrong. can't keep getting away with it. But he does keep getting away with it. Right. So it, um, it just isn't this. Uh, I don't know. You call it a. Yeah, the ironic mode. It's it's lower than comedy. It's uh, where the protagonist is such a horrible, filthy person, but he's rewarded, or the the other way, or or the inverse, I guess. It's if the protagonist is a low person, but then he's punished horribly. Mm-hmm. That isn't true of Faust. That would be true of the other characters. They are low, our level or lower people who then are punished horribly by coming into contact with Faust. So in that regard, it's ironic. Yeah, yeah, I, I, 
I have to just keep like stressing that I, I think Goethe is actually aware of these conventions and is specifically setting out to say none of nothing really matters. Like, and, and even in the beginning, Mephistopheles and God, their, their original wager and their original conversation about Faust, God says, you know, he will always, you know, my child will always strive, uh, kind of thing. And Mephistopheles is like, you know, my child will get, you know, be corrupted. He said, God says, as irrt der Mensch so long as streift. Man errs so long as he will strive. Right. So he's saying that the sin along the way is not what matters. Mm -hmm. Whereas the previous morality, including not so much classical, actually, it's pretty much just the Christian morality, would be that what all that matters is the sin along the way. Like that's right. the defining aspect. So I would say that this is, in the pure literary sense, it's ironic, but it's on purpose, and it's like a, I would call it a romantic, like, neo-tragedy, or like, attempt to be, like, a genre-bending kind of thing. I think it, I think it would fall into that. It has it's a like tragedy within it. Well, it's halfway. It does. It's halfway between irony and myth. I mean, it, it's really like on the opposite side of the spectrum. And I'm I'm relying on uh, that Cana that damn Canadian uh, Northrop Fry's literary uh, theory of literary modes, where he lays out he he thinks there's five literary modes, and uh, there's myth, there's romance, there's tragedy, there's comedy, and there's irony or satire and these things are differentiated by the moral uh, relationship of the protagonist to the audience and he talks about in there how there's like a a sort of weird spectrum where something can be so ironic that it starts to become mythological and maybe i mentioned this in the previous episode but for instance zeus or jupiter uh, banging europa Oh yeah, in the form of uh, in the form of a bull. Yeah, is that irony or myth? You could see how it would have started off as an ironic story because the idea of your top god turning into a bull and then banging a woman is hilarious. But you say it so many times, it just stops being funny, and it's just it become it's a uh, it becomes a myth where it's inexplicable according to the uh, the laws of like morality. Um, I don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe Faust is in that spectrum between irony and myth. I think I would say the whole work together is myth, but it can. I think the Gretchen story is a self-contained tragedy within it, mm -hmm. and then I think there are moments of comedy. There there are like a, perhaps some self-contained comedies. Um, I think Mephistopheles himself is is like the com the comedic relief throughout the whole thing because he's always cracking jokes and stuff. But cynical, cynical yeah. jokes, yeah. Which is another contextual clue that I think he's the cynical side of the Romantic movement. He's like the because Faust will go off on a beautiful soliloquy, right, where he's talking about nature, he's talking about his own depression and ennui, and the devil will just cut in. So it's almost like Goethe on Goethe. It's like. Oh yeah, that poetry is really nice, jackass. Like, but how about, you know, 
Yeah. Um, well, is it? I, I think Goethe himself. I mean, I was thinking. Well, does do, did Goethe see himself as Faust? I mean, certainly in chasing uh, girls, uh, this this idea of like getting with the innocent girl that very much is looks like Goethe's life, and the idea of a scholar who gets isn't satisfied with all the knowledge that he has and that he can't have and wants more. That very much is Goethe himself. Um, but also in that, that regard of Faust being the serious one and the profound one and Mephisto being the lulls one, Goethe to me strikes, seems like he's Faust. I mean, he, throughout his whole life, he, I don't see in his life ever him having a Mephisto streak. I and mean, maybe he did, and it was like he just covered it up or something. But I think it's all, something he had to he had to get over, just just like how Faust did. You know? It's oh like, well, yeah. It's I mean, like I guess story. Right, it, yeah, if you look at like his time in Leipzig, maybe that was his Mephisto time. Yeah, I think he, was, he always. I, I think he always had these questioning doubts. Um, I read a short, not even biography, but. Um, I would have to bring it up uh, like an intro to Goethe because I realized I didn't really know his um, I, I read like drips of his uh, it's by Richie Robinson Robertson and it's just called Goethe. It's like an introductory uh-huh. um, text and it, t- it just talks about his life and some of his works and puts some of it in context like, you know, that woman that he the, the Brion woman that he left that he felt guilty about that was probably the prototype for Gretchen. Mm-hmm. Um I think that guy mentions that some of Faust was probably inspired by Napoleon, which Goethe was very impressed with, like the great man idea and the uh, ref- the great reformer, which Faust is in part mm-hmm. two. You know, right. um, so I think it's a mixture of himself and his feelings. And so throughout his life, uh, in his letters and stuff, he he writes about how he's basically like feels guy. He's 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 has like this tremendous um, he's almost like manic depressive, like he'll be fall in love and and everything's great. And then he'll go through these tremendous depressions. And I think he just discovered that the way through that and the way through life and to, you know, it's just to continue acting and, you know, in the world to try to you know do things like whether it's his writing projects or his uh, his little science stuff or and, you know, all the things that he did. And I think that's the, also the story of Faust. Uh, it's the acting man. It's it's really the only way through anything. Like if you're depressed, if you it, whether you're happy or you're depressed, whether you've accomplished a lot or a little, it really doesn't matter. Um, as long as you're not continuing to do something, you're going to feel crappy. Yeah, I I read uh, a good part of this biography of Goethe. Oh, it is. It's uh, no, no, it's a different, it's a different Robertson. It's, this is by, uh, J.G. Robertson, who was a, an English scholar from the early 20th century, and it's called The Life and Work of Goethe. And what struck me about Goethe is that he, he's very much not like me or most of the people that I know in this movement. He's very, uh, he's, he's feel, He's a very feely, touchy-feely, sentimental person. Yes. And I know that was fashionable back then, but it's also just, it seems to be really who he was. But his best friend, or his probably his most important friendship, as you already mentioned, was with uh, the poet-playwright Friedrich Schiller. 
And I just, for fun, for the fun of it, looked up these guys, uh, Myers-Briggs personality. And uh, allegedly Schiller was an INTP, which I could see. He was very interested in the actual history and the details and trying to... Uh, Schiller seems like someone I could get along with, but Goethe just... Uh, <laughs> I mean, yes, you could get along with him, but then he would go on some flight of fancy and... Uh, he's just really he, he one one of the things one of the key moments in his life was his trip to italy uh which he went to for about a year and a half uh he took a sabbatical from his work in weimar and went to germany or italy and the way it's described in his letters he just he was like overflowing with emotion for how beautiful italy was and he he rushed he couldn't even take the time to actually look around Florence. He like passed through Florence in a day on his way down to Rome because he just had to get to Rome. And, uh, and it just was like this orgasm of culture and feels for a year and a half, uh, which I, I mean, I guess we can all sort of relate to, but not quite. It really was, it's really very uh, artsy and bohemian. And he kept it in check, though, in his actual like there. There's times when people would say, oh, you know, you're like a strict. He would sometimes be called strict and not patient with people. And because they would be like dwelling on their feelings too much, he was <laughs> kind of like um, like he had a rich internal life. And in his works and in his letters, he would have all of these like touchy feely things. But at the time, like he wouldn't like weep in front of his friends, you know? Yeah. Which is like how that would be expressed these days. Like he would still be manly and and do do what had to be done uh, and make like logical, rational decisions. It's just he actually on the undercurrent of all of it, he was like at least self-reportedly having powerful emotional experience right i'm not, I'm not saying time. i'm not saying he was a drama fag but he had the capacity <laughs> to be a drama fag oh yeah <laughs> i wanted to put it to you uh if you were to write if you were to write a faust tragedy today uh to take the same theme and rework it for the modern day how would you do it the there's a famous version of faust written by the degenerate weirdo uh anti-nazi faggot by the name of thomas mann yeah. called dr faustus and i've never read it but my uh my gay german professor uh, kindly gave a good summary of it in class and basically what happens is it's set in the 20th century uh the guy who is dr faustus the main character he is a musician and he wants to get to the next level of musical composition mm -hmm, and yeah. so he do, do you have you read it or do you know the story i know the story but yeah. i haven't read it so he wants to become he decides to try to compose rather than on the uh eight note major scale he invents a 12 note uh, revised musical scale or system and so he yeah. starts composing play or composing symphonies on the the 12 note si system that he's devised and in order to really get his mind all the way there he has to uh get syphilis by fucking a prostitute because syphilis apparently in its early stages just breaks down um your brain just enough to create some really great connections and it's kind of like i don't know doing uh, adderall or, or caffeine all the time and or pl plus lsd or something and 
so he starts being able to create these really great symphonies and that's the basic idea but you can see how thomas mann reworked the faust theme and made it you know very 20th century and degenerate uh and appealing to the modern audience how would you how would you produce a what would the faust story be if it was written today uh, I would have two versions. So I would have a comedy version, which would be Faust is like a liberal who like, you know, I've I've done BLM, I've done gay, you know, and like becomes a tranny and ultimately like ends up killing himself because like 50 percent, you know, like he, he goes through like this like transhuman alterations to his body to try to achieve, you know, like the doctor, uh, whoever the Magnus Hirschfeld of today is, would be his mm -hmm. Mephistopheles. Um, kind of thing. Okay. All right. Uh, so That's that a would proposal. be <laughs> a serious version. Would be, I guess, kind of semi-autobiographical. A, uh, a, a like a white man who's grown up in like you know this post-Western like collapsing civilization and went through like the the academic system and then decided you know was not fully satisfied with that and decided to like become a white nationalist and try to. <laughs> you know, create a pan pan European imperium in the modern time. See, I was thinking about this and, and my version of it was that the Faust character is already a Nazi and he starts off as a Nazi and he gets bored. He's like, yeah, I know. I know blacks are dumb. Jews are evil. Uh, <laughs> women are stupid. Like I get it. Uh, and he, he wants more knowledge and he can't get more knowledge. And so he makes a deal with the devil where, he will sell his soul to the devil if the devil gives him uh, if he's ever his soul goes to the devil devil. If Faust ever says, I've had too many lulls. <laughs> and so he has to like then go and become more and more cynical and fucked up and degenerate. So it is kind of like your first version, but he's already a Nazi here uh, or he's already he already knows what the truth is. But he he wants to like almost become the Jew. And so he uh, yeah, he like chases after boys, becomes a pedo, and it joins the FBI, like kicks people's doors down, points his guns in their faces and, you know, uh, you know, kills civilians, uh, maybe goes and joins Azov. I don't know, like does a whole bunch of shit <laughs> and becomes a tranny. Uh, <laughs> right. And then I guess he would have to, but then how would he be saved? I was thinking maybe he would be saved because he encounters the one thing in the world that is, cannot possibly be made lulls, which is a young man willing to die for Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Or, I mean, he could be saved by just destroying himself, which would be a good act at that point. <laughs> um, I was, another version could be uh, that Faust is a Jew who's like, he's, he's kvetched, he's kvetched all the kvetching. Like he's, you know, he's lamented the first temple and the second temple and he knows all this and, and it's like he he needs new levels of like oive, and so Mephistopheles comes and offers him like new um, atrocity porn. Like actually, six million were also killed during World War One. Did you okay, hear that? No, I think I think we're onto something here. If we <laughs> if we revise my version and we say that Faust at the beginning is not a Nazi who's already red pilled and bored, and we say that he's a Jew who already understands things, and mm -hmm. then pursues like becomes more and more degenerate, goes through that same that same trajectory. And then he gets to the end and he realizes that the only thing that could be more lulls than anything he's done before is to be a Jew who becomes a Nazi and then kills himself for anti-Semitic reasons. 
Yeah, so basically uh, the Ryan Gosling movie, The Believer, in 2001. <laughs> I've never seen that. I, yeah, sure. you, should, you should see that. You should oh, see okay. that. Oh, it's, is that? He's a Jewish Nazi. Oh, okay. Ryan Gosling. Oh, yes, I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking more like, um, I was thinking of the life of the semi, well, the Austrian Jewish writer, uh, philosopher, uh, Otto Weininger. Hmm. Do you know about him? A little bit. He was the guy that wrote Sex and Character, which is, I, I can't, it's fuck, it's, uh, I've got to hand it to these Jews. It's genius. I don't, I can't tell if I'm being played or not, uh, but his description of like the difference between men and women, it made a lot of things make sense to me. Um, maybe it's Jewish poison. I don't know. I can't recommend it to anybody. It's uh, somebody with more knowledge of the Jews would have to say whether this is actually a genius. I think Camille Paglia references it. It's a, it's a, it's a dangerous and brilliant book, um, but Weininger did kill himself at the age of 23, uh, and he was extremely anti-Semitic despite being a Jew. So I don't know. Yeah. Many such cases. Many. Yeah. I mean, perhaps a uh, modern Faust character in the real world. All right. Well, uh, that's fun. And should we, any uh, final thoughts on Faust? I, I could ask you some, or ask a last question or two, but is there anything we've missed? I mean, that we can, we can condense into a two hour podcast. Um, you know, I have some notes about it in general, but I think a lot of this bleeds into part two and uh-huh. like the whole the work as a whole and Goethe as a whole and the stuff, the Spenglerian stuff what that he drew from Goethe. So I don't think I have anything else specifically about Faust part one. Yeah, I, I just my my final thought is just to sort of reiterate what I was ta- talking about at the beginning about the. Uh, German culture and Western culture in general, Faust is definitely one of the key works of Western literature. Probably, I mean, some people would argue number one, uh, but certainly, I don't think anybody would would dispute that it's in the top ten uh, of works of you know Western European literature. You know, since you know since classical civilization, uh, or since the end of classical civilization. You really can't understand a lot of basically all of German history and culture since then without understanding Goethe's Faust, or at least having some of the basic elements of it down. It is it's constantly referenced. Uh, you know, Hitler references it and alludes to it all the time. And there really isn't too much in the way of German literature before Faust. Uh, you know, there's there's Lessing and there's some of Goethe's earlier works and there's Goethe's Faust came out at the that peak of German literature, which was right around 1800. So the decades, two decades before, two, three decades after is is it was coming out right in the midst of all that. So pretty much everything, if you understand that period and the chief work of that period is Goethe's Faust, then a lot of other stuff starts to make sense. So it's unfortunate that in America and Britain and France that this work is really fallen by the wayside and is. People might know the the Faustian bargain, or they might know uh, some little pieces of it, but it really ought to occupy, I think, a, a central place in the Western canon, on par with with Shakespeare or Dante or yeah, those two. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you know, uh, Goethe didn't think too much of Dante. 
I, I know he, he wasn't a big fan of Dante, which is which uh, and I, can, I think I can explain that because Dante had one girl that he was obsessed with his whole life and stuck to her. And Goethe, which is flitting around different women, uh, <laughs> couldn't decide, couldn't settle on one his one ideal woman. Dante, sort of a, a weird inversion of the typical or the stereotypical Italian and German. Dante was all about that one woman, all about Beatrice. And Goethe was just... I think that I think he said that the Inferno. I think he just didn't like the uh, gore of it, you know, the kind of the beauty of the um, whatever the beauty of the terror of hell. He just didn't see value in that. Well, and it, and it if you're comparing the ethical systems of both, you know, of of uh, Inferno versus uh, Goethe's Faust, Goethe wants there to be redemption for people. And Dante is perfectly happy to just throw them in hell and laugh at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like take pleasure in the yeah, in that system. Like, is there anybody that Goethe would condemn? I'm sure that if I went back and and looked at his some of these biographical notes about him, there's probably people that he hated. I can't think of any off the top. Yeah, you, know, you know who I think he would condemn? Uh, I think he would condemn the normie. He would con- he would condemn the idol like. Uh, internet memer well yeah that too but i mean when i say the normie i mean like the materialist who is happy just having a middle-class job and a middle-class house and a middle-class family he would i think he would be okay with the, the hunter biden who is like a crass materialist and <laughs> wanted more and more and more like if if materialism is your thing you like you got to go all the way but i think that's would really loathe a person who was happy with modest things Maybe, but you know there are some passages when he when Faust first meets Gretchen, where she, where he writes favorably of somebody because she says right. that she she finds satisfaction in like rests and just like food, like basic but stuff. A, but she's a yeah, yes, that's true too. Although he did have some romantic. That's another thing about him is his experiences with relationships. He started off as a pure romantic, and then after he had his heart broken and broke some hearts, he kind of mixed classical views on women with some because he still had female friendships where he would actually respect women as more than greeks would right uh but he did have some classical views as well to, uh that were not in line with the romantic era views on women so he was a little bit of a mixture there yeah and i mean he, i think he does express some sympathy for for peasants and he portrays them fairly well so i guess we couldn't say that he would condemn a person who was had very low desires and was satisfied with little. But I think you, you might be onto something with saying that he would condemn the, the, the person who is only online and only a memer. Because he would say, yeah. well, you need to get out there and actually do something. And he wouldn't have respect for somebody who just was all talk. I think he would I think he would condemn somebody who was not striving at the level at which they could strive. So if somebody is a simple person and their mind and the way they are is such that they get a job, you know, blue collar, white collar, whatever, mm-hmm. and the extent to which they can really interact with the world is just to kind of do the right thing in that kind of life. I don't think he would condemn that. I think he would condemn somebody who has the potential for genius and takes the easy way out or the idle way you know, it, it, however that take whatever form that might take in in someone's life that they choose like the idle versus the active 
way yeah, of pursuing their life. I'll agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, with with Gretchen, that makes sense because she she's a, a 13 or not 13, 15. It's not FBI level here. Or it's a 15 <laughs> year old girl. And she she could be older, by the way. It's, it's she might be older. Yeah, she, she she's over 14. Yeah. And she isn't very interesting. She doesn't really have a lot. She just wants to have a man and have kids. And it's not you can't really blame her for falling for Faust. It's not like there's a whole lot of men in her life. Uh, so I think that's why she's saved, because she conforms to what you just outlined there. People have to strive within their capacity to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, Faust would or um, Goethe would would admire the peasant who was good at being a peasant and wanted to be the best peasant he could be. And at the same time, would expect more of uh, people with more talent and more ability that they should really push themselves for something even more. So, yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is I don't want to say get off the Internet. Yes, but get off the Internet. Do things in the real world. But then Otherwise, come back on the internet next week for the next. Yeah, but do come, yes, come back. Thank you. Yes, come back on the internet next week for the next Prussian socialism. All right. Well, thank you, Ramon, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk about this stuff, and I hope we've given our audience at least an overview and some some ideas about how to uh, read this book. I we mentioned already. Uh, I'll post these couple biographies of Goethe uh, to give a little background information, and then. There is the commonly available Goethe's Faust, uh, which is only uh, translated by Walter Kaufman, the Jew. It's only part one uh, and then like a couple scenes from part two. But it does have German and English, which I think is useful. And I will find my other copy of a better translation and post. I have one that's uh, part one and two. And unlike yours, it's by A.S. Klein. So... (laughs) very different <laughs> is it what's the translation like is it prose or verse uh it's verse and m- so i read some of the i compared some of the kaufman and the um klein <laughs> it's, it's a joke it's like comparing the one jewish yeah, I mean, translation we're, with the other we're, jewish. We're William in the 21st century there's <laughs> don't have a choice except which jew do you want to read faust in or do you want to well, read good there's or? always one thing that we do have though because of the nature of uh, vocal physiognomy is uh, the reader on an audiobook will always be Goy, <laughs> <laughs> usually with a British accent. So it's uh, it's definitely in rhymed verse, and I think it, some of the sections come aqua- across quite well. I felt like the Kaufman was um, trying a little too hard to make it poetry. There mm-hmm. are times when Klein allows it to the poet. Yeah, obviously you can imagine that these these guys have to make choices every line, right? Like, do I want to get rid of these two syllables to make the meter right? But it's I can't fit the yeah, literal word. Yeah, stick another word in, or do you, do I use a, a the standard word, or do I use a dialectical form or an archaic word? And yeah, right. it, it you 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 can have one or the other. You can have form or you can have content. You can't have both. So I think they both. Um, compromised between form and content and i was reasonably happy with klein's version i like i said i compared it to some of kaufman's and i felt like it was less flowery i I felt like the kaufman was a little bit more trying to be poetry the whole time in terms of rhyme and meter but i didn't compare 
the full works of either of them together. So I, I can't say for sure. But I was pretty happy with Decline. All right. And I'll try to find I'll find that other English one that I read years ago that I thought was a little bit better than the Kaufman version. But either way, or, you know, just to, to spend a few years and learn German, just drop everything and do that. Well, anyway, thank you, Roman, and talk to you later. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my God.